If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome to the History Extra podcast. Fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. For millennia, Egypt's mighty pyramids have acted as emblems of the vibrant ancient civilization that once straddled the Nile Valley. From their vast scale and mysteries surrounding their design and construction, to the enigma of the Great Sphinx, the pyramids continue to fascinate the world. In this latest episode of our Everything You Wanted to Know series, Danny Bird put your questions to Mark Lena, an Egyptologist who has spent over 40 years studying these iconic structures. Mark, thank you very much for joining me today for this latest episode of Everything You Wanted to Know, where we'll be discussing the pyramids of ancient Egypt. Pleasure to be here. For many people, the Giza pyramids are the iconic structures of ancient Egyptian civilization. Could you paint a picture for our listeners of what it is like to visit the Giza Plateau and venture inside the Great Pyramid? Well, when you visit the Giza Plateau, you generally come from the north through very busy streets of modern Cairo. And there are whole new points of view. There are whole new visages of the pyramid with new flyovers. Modern Giza, a suburb, has really come right up to the very base of the Giza Plateau. And so when you come over one particular flyover, one of the principal routes, the first thing you see is the Great Pyramid, because it's the furthest north of the three. 
And it looks huge. And generally, I mean, if you're coming like in the early morning or especially if you're coming in the evening, it, there it rises, this huge structure of antiquity in the desert haze. And, you know, you're coming, passing through modern streetlights and apartment buildings and gas stations, and it truly looks like something from another world that's just brought forward right onto the modern city. If you come from the east, it's a whole different view. You see all three pyramids splayed out on the horizon with Khufu to the right, Great Pyramid, Khafre, the second pyramid in the middle, and Menkare to the far left. And it almost looks like they intentionally created this informal balance where you have two pyramids that look about the same size. And then in the distance and smaller, you have the third pyramid. So that's what artists call this informal balance. It almost is more aesthetic than if they had had three big pyramids all right on the same line. So cutting the center axis of this whole panorama is the second pyramid and its causeway. The causeway goes from the pyramid down to the level of the Nile Valley to the Valley Temple of Khafre, which all tourists visit, and right beside it is the Great Sphinx. So you have this marvelous panorama with a center axis marked by the Great Sphinx itself. This was the ancient view. This is how you saw Giza when you arrived by boat in the time of the pyramids themselves. But there's something that people don't really appreciate. You arrived five meters or more lower because the whole surface has been built up by the annual inundation of the Nile, which stopped with the high dams at Aswan. But the whole valley floor today is five meters, 15 feet higher. And then you were even lower probably in a basin, a waterway. So all of Giza, the Khafre Valley Temple, the Sphinx, it was all much more on high than it is today. So to go inside the pyramid is really kind of a cool experience. I think it still is, even I've been going in the pyramid for some 50 years. You go into a tunnel that was forced sometime by someone, but it was forced by actually blasting. People, workers blasted their way through the already laid masonry. And that tunnel curves around and it connects with the original passages. And then you connect with the original passage system after you get around these plugging blocks of granite. That's probably why the forced passage, the tunnel, curves and then connects. Maybe somebody knew those plugging blocks were there. Now you're in a passage that's only 1.05 meters wide and 1.2 meters tall, and you have to sort of duck walk up that passage for 38 meters, bent over. Now, there's two-way traffic. Some days, when it's really busy, it can smell like a workout gym. After 38 meters, though, you can stand up, and you're in this stupendous space. It's called the Grand Gallery. The walls of the Grand Gallery get narrower, narrower, narrower with every course of masonry until they just about close to a meter. And it's all angled up at 26 degrees. I mean, it looks cathedral-like. So now you walk up the Grand Gallery, and then you climb up this big step, you duck through a little antechamber, and you're in the King's Chamber, which is basically a big granite box holding a smaller granite box, the sarcophagus, where presumably Khufu was put to rest. Now, the acoustics there are tremendous. They reverberate 
and actually start oscillating almost like a big pipe organ. And there are many new age groups, mystics, pyramid mystics, who go in and will chant. And it is truly awesome. Did the ancient Egyptians intend that? You know, they had this thing, sending forth the voice, which would affect the deceased to come forth by day, maybe. Now, the other pyramids are good to go into as well. Second Pyramid of Khafre, Third Pyramid of Menkare, very interesting, beautiful internal structures. The thing is, after Khufu, no king put his passageways and chambers so high up in the pyramid. After that, almost every pyramid you descend, they made a burial chamber for the king at about ground level, uh, or just a little below ground level, and they roofed it with the big gabled beams. Khufu was the only one who put his chambers as high as he did in his pyramid. And so whereas many people think, oh, that's the classic Egyptian pyramid. No, it's the most anomalous Egyptian pyramid. I suppose that leads on to the next question, which, given the sheer number of pyramids, is going to be very relative. But could you tell us how tall they are on average? Well, the Great Pyramid of Khufu, I think it's 146.5 meters. And uh, I believe that's somewhere like 450 some feet. I'm sure everybody interested in out there in pyramids, I'll get emails, will like, <laughs> correct me. Khafre is similar, the second pyramid, about 10 meters shorter, but he put his pyramid on ground that's 10 meters higher. And interestingly, he's the one who named his pyramid Great. Great is Khafre. And then something happened. Egyptians stopped building gigantic pyramids, and they put their focus somewhere else. And that happened at Giza, where Menkare, he started a pyramid, never finished it, nearly finished it, but not quite. But Menkare, presumably the grandson of Khufu, he builds a pyramid only 105 meters to a side. The second pyramid is 215 meters to a side. Khufu is 230 meters to a side. So he's reducing the area of his pyramid by a quarter or about. So the smaller the square you lay out, the less you're giving yourself to do to get to the point. Now, maybe Menkare was old when he came to the throne, but thereafter, kings never built gigantic pyramids like those of Khafre, Khufu, and Khufu's father, Snefru. And it's almost as though they're putting more effort now into developing Egypt, Egyptian infrastructure, the canals, the new farms and ranches, the trade routes, that they established to bring things to Giza for building these colossal pyramids. Now that infrastructure became more important in its own right. It's a point I make again and again, but I think it's definitely true. It's almost like our internet, you know, being developed for one thing, but the internet becomes more important in its own right. They still build pyramids, but they're composed of not huge, gigantic blocks. It's almost as though they took the debris and rubble that they used to make the ramps, and they're putting that inside the pyramid, casing it off, and calling it a day. Uh, the temples become much more elaborate, much more artistic relief carving and painting, but the pyramid never grew to those gigantic proportions again. So the pyramids of Khufu and Khafre are unusual. Very unusual. I would say you have to look at them together, and you have to look at them with the three gigantic pyramids that Khufu's father built. And then you have to think this was something like our space programs, post-World War II, 
where we took off, you know, and we really put a lot of effort into it. It was this burst of activity that put a whole new spin on the gyroscope of ancient Egyptian society and economy. And that's my read on why they went to these smaller pyramids, so that a pyramid of a king in the 6th dynasty, two dynasties after the Giza dynasty, a pyramid of a king that reigned nine years is about the same as the pyramid of a king, Pepe II, the last king of the old kingdom, who reigned 90 years. It's almost like they're now just using a template because their priorities have shifted. And the infrastructure that made giant pyramids possible is now more important than giant pyramids. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. So we've had a question from Instagram from a user called Victoria Gray. And they'd like to know who was actually building the pyramids and were the pyramids built by slaves or by skilled artisans? Well, that's really a good question. Um, it's a question I get all the time. I've done a fair amount of reading on what scholars call labor organization and slavery. And one thing I have to say is there's no doubt from ancient sources, texts, that they would capture people and put them to work on the pyramids. And not just in the Old Kingdom, which is the Pyramid Age. 1,200 years later, in the New Kingdom, the time of Tutankhamun, and the builders of the great temples at Luxor, they would do the same. The thing is, they would integrate people into that temple that they helped build. They would become the cultivators of that temple's land. Uh, I mean, just like in uh, England, you know, the various barons and institutions, the church owned it, their own estates and land. They would work that land. They would work in the temple. And there's a certain irony where there's evidence that they would become more exempt from labor tax than your average Egyptian. So we know that that would happen. But that didn't supply the, the bulk of the labor for the pyramids. It couldn't have to go out and capture people. And, do, and We believe it was a kind of a conscription. What I tell audiences is, according to my reading, in the pre-modern world, labor was obligatory. And it's hard for us to grasp this. Obligatory labor was a fact of life. You owed labor to a lord. So the question is, you know, how did they mobilize labor sufficiently to build these giant pyramids? And that's kind of what our research is all about, where we have found what we call, without too much uh, exaggeration, the lost city of the pyramids. What does the footprint tell us about how they organize people? We, we have a lot of new information about this from what I think is the most important discovery in the 50 years I've been working in Egypt. It was made by Pierre Talley and our French colleagues at the Sorbonne at a place called Wadi al-Jarf, which is a port of Khufu on the Red Sea. We know from the evidence that it was used only in the time of Khufu. The site itself is amazing. There are these big parking garages cut into the mountains where they would store the parts of ships 
that they used to sail across the Red Sea to Sinai to get copper. You needed more copper to build the Great Pyramid of Giza than was assembled anywhere else in the world. And that's what they were doing there. You have a camp of workers, you have a big mole or wharf, but when they plugged these parking garages for ships' parts at the end of Khufu's reign, they left behind some papyri. Now, the papyri are fragments, they're called Wadi al-Jarf, papyri, after the name of the site. When Pierre Talley and his team assembled these fragments, some of them were 50 centimeters long. They were the records of a team leader named Merer, M-E-R-E-R, and his team, which is called Aza, like Z-A, and it's written with a, a rope tied in loops, like a cattle hobble, like you tie around young calves so they all move together. Merer and his Za, and that's what they called the team, the records were all about building the Great Pyramid. Merer was making round trips from the eastern quarries to Giza. Uh, he had other jobs, like up in the Delta. At the end of Khufu's reign, Merer and his Za, his team, were working at Wadi al-Jarf. But you can imagine, with 16 days running of round trips, we learn about waterways, we learn about the names of their teams. Uh, because Merer left in these papyri his journal, his logbook. And they also left accounts of what they're eating and so on. And it doesn't look like slavery. It looks like these are young recruits, and they are recruited possibly through the different districts of Egypt. It's like a bucket brigade where the king calls up from those who are under him, and they call up from those who are under them to furnish not only goods and material, but people. So that leads us on to the next question, which is, how were the pyramids built? What materials are they made of? And how long did it take to construct them? You actually can break it down into a series of tools. What were their tools? Techniques, like a crowbar or, or a lever is a tool. Levering is a technique. And operations, how do you load a block onto a sledge? And uh, all of those are really fascinating things in their own right, about which some of me and some of my colleagues have done experiments. How do you load a two-and-a-half-ton block on a wooden sledge? Well, I actually did... Um, experiments with that, as has have others, um, for ANOVA, one of the films in the science series of WTBH here in the States in Boston. This was quite some years ago, but the producer-director had spent quite a lot of money constructing a wooden sledge, like those that we see in the Cairo Museum. And I think the sledge itself weighed something like half a ton, three quarters of a ton. And so we had workers, some of our own and professional quarry workers. And there was like a two and a half ton block. And we were finding out lots of interesting things. Like they could move blocks by tumbling them, by getting a lever under it and flipping it over. And then you have a fulcrum. You put a stone. So you never want to flatbed it. That's what I learned from these workers. You never flatbed a two-and-a-half-ton block because then you got to get your fingers under it or a lever. So they tumble it, and then they tumble it over to the sledge. One last tumble, boom, and they're going to put it right on the sledge, except they didn't quite aim right. And this two-and-a-half-ton block with very sharp edges caught the edge of the sledge, completely cracked all the cross beams of the sledge. The sledge went up in the air and splintered to pieces. And so it was very insightful because it's not a simple thing, this little operation, how do you load a sledge? I still wonder about this because the blocks in the Great Pyramid, or any of the pyramids, 
are not well-squared blocks. There are no blocks the same size. They weren't using modular sizes to the blocks. So if the blocks can be any old size and to some extent shape, how do you use sledges that are standardized? You can't custom make a wooden sledge for every single big stone. So, I mean, there's all kinds of tricky questions, no doubt. But perhaps the trickiest question, and I'll probably leave it as a question, is how did they get the stones, you know, 146.5 meters up? Why were they built and what purpose did they serve? It's truly a fascinating question that we still wonder about. And, you know, we can only, like, take what we can read from their religious literature for example, the pyramid texts. At the end of the next dynasty, the one after Giza, at the end of the fifth dynasty, they began putting spells on the walls of the king's burial chamber. They're called the pyramid texts. These um, are the earliest rendition of what became eventually the Book of the Dead. And it's all about journeys through the afterlife, the journey of the king's soul, the king's journey with the solar bark. And I, I think probably the very brief answer is they were resurrection machines. They were machines for the king's soul to ascend both to the celestial afterlife and to the thonic, the underworld, because they are part of a continuous cycle. The passages of the pyramids, they slope down at 26 degrees, or rather they slope up at 26 degrees, which is the angle of inclination for the circumpolar stars that go around the pole star because of the tilt of the Earth on its axis. And the circumpolar stars that never rise or set, like the other stars, you know, rise and set through the evening, they were called the imperishable ones. And that was a destiny for the king's soul. But like in the Great Pyramid of Khufu, you also have a so-called air passage going to the southern sky from the burial chamber. And it probably aimed at Orion, another image, a celestial image of the god Osiris, the god of resurrection. So it seems to be all about getting the king resurrected on the other side of death. How many pyramids were constructed by the ancient Egyptians and how long was pyramid building in vogue for? Pyramid building went on from the old kingdom, you know, it was the pyramid age par excellence. And then you had the, these intermediate periods where everything broke down and there was no unified government. And so the first intermediate period followed the pyramid age. And then you have the reunion of Egypt again, the United Kingdom, and they start building pyramids again. Albeit now they're building them Again, not on a gigantic scale. And they're starting to build pyramids of mud brick, cased with limestone. But if you take the entire Old Kingdom and Middle Kingdom, we're dealing with about 700 years, 800 years of building pyramids. And then you had another intermediate period where things broke down. And when Egypt reunited again, it's the age of empire, the time of Tutankhamun and Ramses and all the pharaohs of such a high popularity rating. And at that time, individual people People of the court would build small pyramids above their tombs. But the kings now, of course, are buried in the Valley of the Kings. And, you know, it's said that the pointed mountain above the Valley of the Kings was a natural pyramid for these communal burials. And there are more pyramids in Nubia than there are in all of Egypt. I think something like 180. But the age of truly gigantic pyramids was three or four generations. So we're going to move on now to a few questions from Instagram that users have submitted. The first question is from Waterfist, and they want to know how long did the outer white covering last for on the pyramids? That's actually a really good question. It's surprising we don't have a better idea of exactly when all the beautiful casing on the outside of the uh, 
the Giza pyramids were ripped away. You can actually see how people who took off the casing did it, like on the second pyramid. It's, it looks like a snow cone in a way. It has some of the casing at the top. They would start at the bottom and take away the stones and send them tumbling down. A lot of this was done for construction in the Middle Ages. And we know that. There's, I think, one European reference, somebody from Europe coming and seeing this happening. But it's not exactly clear the stages at which the pyramids were stripped. Along with that question is just how you go in the Great Pyramid today. Was that only done in the early 800s AD? Or was it somebody who knew just where to go to connect with the passages inside the pyramid? Well, you can see... Evidently, the pyramid was still covered with its white casing. Uh, or was it? You see, because the forced passage, the tunnel that you go in, curves around to get behind the plugging blocks that were the first line of defense. It almost looks like somebody knew just where to go. And that somebody would be somebody who knew the internal passage system. But if that's the case... The hole that they blasted through the outer casing, maybe at the end of the Old Kingdom, you know, when the intermediate period, when the United Kingdom broke down, that would have been open for all to see. So it's rather curious, and it's most probable that it was the Caliph al-Mamun in the early 800s AD who ordered it, and evidently the casing was still there then. So that agrees with other bits and bobs of evidence that it was in the Middle Ages when they really stripped the pyramids. Sizwan from Instagram would like to know, are there any foundations to the pyramids? That's a really good question because foundations are everything. I talked about Khufu's father, Snefru, who did all the R&D, the research and development that allowed Khufu to build the biggest pyramid of all time. But the foundations were the key thing. Several kings came to the throne after Djoser, who built the very oldest pyramid in Egypt, the Steppe Pyramid at Saqqara. Maybe three other kings tried to build step pyramids and they couldn't get it done. But really, for the next 70 years, nobody built a pyramid. Nobody could get a pyramid built. Snefru comes along. Well, he builds a step pyramid at a place called Medum, which is about 60 kilometers south of Giza. And you can see today his inner step pyramid. And then he starts to enlarge it to seven steps, making it much bigger than what Joseph tried at Saqqara. And then he stops and he moves to Dashur, closer to Giza, and he starts a pyramid. He, nobody knows what a classic pyramid should look like, so he starts a pyramid at 60 degrees, which is way too steep, but here's the key for the question. He's building on the desert clay and gravel. He's not building on really solid bedrock. And so there was slipping and sliding, and they were like, oops, now I'm simplifying. They put a girdle, like a waistband around it, and that was now at 54 degrees. But there was still slipping and sliding. We can actually see where the outer mantle itself was sliding like that. There are two passages, one on the west, one on the north. And when you go down those passages, you can actually see where it went, almost like an earthquake. So they lowered the slope to 43 degrees. And then Snefru starts another pyramid to the north at Dashur at the low slope of 43 degrees. And he completes it. At the same time, he sends another team back to Medum to dress that pyramid at 52 degrees and make it a true pyramid. So these are the three pyramids where you can see the whole thing being worked out. 52 degrees is the classic pyramid slope. That's what Khufu did. Through all of this, they're struggling with the foundations. And they're realizing the foundations are everything. 
When Khufu comes to the throne, he must have been a young man. We know he had like uh, four, maybe five bro- older brothers who must have died before their father. So Khufu may have been a, a very young man, comes to the throne. All of Snefru's work stops, this experiment. He comes to Giza, he builds on bedrock. He actually sculpts the base of the pyramid into the natural rock, leaving a core of natural rocks sticking up in the bottom of the pyramid. He's building bigger than anybody had before, taller, wider at the base. And thereafter, Khafre also built on bedrock. So in all this experiment, the culprit that was causing all the problems was, in fact, the foundations. And the key to building a great pyramid to such perfection was building it on the solid rock of the plateau. So that kind of leads on to this next question. Franchise underscore 505 would like to know why the pyramidal shape? Well, first of all, I'm told by engineers, including debris slope specialists, who are brought in to consult when you do a freeway or an autobahn or something, you know, and you do an axis or ramp, you know, how stable different slopes can be of different materials. So debris slope specialists, as I understand, would tell you that 43 degrees is about the angle of proposed of dump gravel. So that's why, you know, if you want to build up and big, you don't build vertical walls 146 meters high. And, you know, the whole history of architecture worldwide is building straight and building high and enclosing lots of empty space. The pyramids are not only roughly the angle of dumped gravel. For example, the Khufu Pyramid, I said 52 degrees. Now, those are the slopes on the center lines, the apothem of the pyramid. But, and people get this wrong, think about it, the corner points are further away from the center point of the square of the base, right? They are roughly, they're about 42 degrees, 18 minutes. And so that's why when you look at the pyramids, and you're straight on, due east, west, north, or south, they're very pointy. But even today in Egypt, as you drive around the ring road around Cairo, you start moving and the pyramids go like that. So this 43 degrees is what's stable uh, when you have a big pile of stuff. And that's why you have pyramids in Mesoamerica, you know, and other pyramidal structures elsewhere in the world. Having said that, why did they case it with polished white limestone? And if you think about it, it's kind of dazzling and hard on the eyes when I've worked at Giza in these years, especially in the summertime, you know, it's 40 degrees, because everything is so bright. You know, you're dealing with white limestone, light-colored sand. But think when the pyramids were complete with polished white limestone. They must have been truly dazzling, like the sun on newly fallen snow. Reflection must have been really intense. And I really think they are monumentalizing the rays of the sun itself with this structure that is so dazzling. First thing the sun would hit as it rises in the east, boom, would have been that pyramid, whether or not it had a gold capstone. And yet inside the pyramid, when you go in there, it's the deepest, darkest, dankest place in the world. So they're truly combining the celestial and the underworld, the thonic aspects. Your point there about the outer casing and how dazzling it must have been when it was in its prime leads on to a question we've received from Tommy O'Mac on Instagram. And he would like to know, what propaganda value did the pyramids serve? 
let's jump forward of 1,200 years to the New Kingdom. On the walls of the temple, Ramses the Great puts himself gigantic in a chariot with the horses rearing up and all his enemies, the forces of chaos, helter-skelter, you know. Of course, it's propaganda value. And we have to think about that, I think, in terms of the Giza pyramids are the first efflorescence of the Egyptian state civilization. And you think that today there's more than 100 million people in Egypt. At that time, there were 1.1 million. But the idea, first of all, that you build this thing and that you pull people from the different districts, you know, and the farms and ranches where they're living in villages with winding paths and so on, and you bring them to Giza and put them like in our lost city site, as we call it. We have found these four big blocks of barracks, very rectilinear. And we think they were barracks. And we found them surrounded by bakeries where they would feed. And then we found the Wadi Ojarf papyri where it looks like there was a real esprit de corps. And they basically kept them in home-based fellowships. Well, certainly you didn't come through this and be a part of the Cecil B. DeMille epic and go back to your village the same. And I, I've used this line too many times, Danny, but I'll do it again. That's why I'm interested not so much in how the Egyptians built the pyramids. I'm interested in that. But I'm interested in how the pyramids helped to build Egypt. And I think therein lies the propaganda value. Yes, I think you're alluding to the fact that these would have been massive national projects. Huge. And uh, it's been, like, again, 1.1 million, 1.2 million people in the entire Nile Valley. And the evidence is, from a variety of sources that they rotated people in and out of the project. So, I mean, it was hugely socializing. And I think one of the things we're missing, especially a lot of my colleagues who theorize about the elite and the manipulation of the elite and, you know, strategy, is that a lot of this, we find evidence in the Lost City site, the City of the Workers, as it's called, of really huge quantities of meat that are being consumed because we save every scrap of animal bone. And after 37 years of this, we have big data. And the big data says they're feeding their workforce prime beef. We find enough meat with some statistics and calculations to feed six and 7,000 people if they ate meat every day. But I think what we see in traditional cultures worldwide is that these huge labor projects are feasts. They're celebrations. And that's why I say, you know, like the Amish here in the United States, and back to the question about slavery and obligatory labor. If you're traditionally, if you were a young Amish person and there was a barn raising, it was a community event. It was a religious event. There were prayers. It was a feast. It was a social event. You might meet a fiance if you're a young person. And you don't really say, you know, I don't want to do that. You know, I'm going to play video games. You know, it's expected you do this. So there's a whole continuum because the Great Pyramid is one hell of a barn, you know. And where do we put the bar in our vision of this obligatory labor between the two drastic scales of slavery in its extreme form, such as was practiced in the United States, or the Amish barn raising? But, but I think we need to see the broad range of possibilities. And so, you know, it goes to propaganda. It goes to the question of slavery. All of these are questions that your listeners are asking that we actively think about, even after working so long 
And as we save every scrap of evidence we can, from the animal bone to the ancient plant remains to their tools and, of course, their architecture. So MHFK on Instagram wants to know, how were the pyramids paid for? That's a good question, because there was no currency. Even centuries later, Egyptians would value things in terms of a standard of metal, debon, copper. And I'm simplifying, but if they wanted to exchange a goat for a chair... You might say, well, my goat is worth so many Debon, and your chair is only worth that much Debon, so you have to throw in something else. They would actually value things in terms of copper as a kind of standard. But this is interesting because the sarcophagus in the Great Pyramid of Khufu is sawn. They, they used a saw to saw it out of the granite. Now, they only had copper, which won't cut granite, so they probably used an abrasive like sand mixed with gypsum and in some of the saw cuts, like in Khufu's basalt blocks of his temple, you can actually see where they pulled out and left the cut. You can see the abrasive. We tried cutting hard granite with copper in one of the How Did They Do It films that I did years ago. And we got a man named Dennis Stocks who was drilling down on just this question. So Dennis joined us in one of our productions about ancient Egyptian obelisks, which are New Kingdom. And he actually brought copper cylinders as well as bronze, where you have tin mixed in, and blades. And we tried this. And we found, if I remember correctly, something along the lines of we could cut. We had to pay people enough to keep at it. But for every three centimeters of cut we lost one centimeter of copper. Now, they might have collected that dust and used something with it. Dennis thinks they did. But just imagine how expensive the granite sarcophagus of the Khufu Pyramid or all the other granite statues and monuments you see. So that's one question. How did they pay for it? They needed more copper than anywhere else in the world to build the Great Pyramid. But that leads us to the Wadi al-Jarf papyri. The reason we found the Wadi al-Jarf papyri, the reason Khufu had a port there, was to go across to Sinai and get that copper. So I think that's probably the most blatant payment or expense, copper itself, against which things were valued. But then, of course, there's the whole question, how did they pay for it in terms of feeding people? And again, everything we've done at our, at our lost city site, the city of the pyramid builders, suggests they're culling their herds mostly of young male cattle under 18 months when we can age it and sex it. And you take the males. You don't want to take the females because you want to keep the herd going. And so it was very expensive in terms of meat and also in terms of grain, so carbohydrates, protein. And they paid for it by organizing themselves on this vast scale, the, the royal house, by basically colonizing their own country, founding new farms, new ranches, sending people out there to Wadi al-Jarf and across to sign into setting up this infrastructure. John Cadwallader would like to know about the supposed replication of the Giza pyramid's layout with that of the three stars in the belt of the constellation Orion. Yes, well, this is a well-known theory, the fact that the three pyramids on their great Giza diagonal matched the three stars in the belt of Orion. When I first heard about that, and it was actually, I think, Robert Baval is one of the if not the first proponent of this, and then Graham Hancock and certainly others, I was kind of impressed. I thought there might be something 
to it because I talked earlier about the layout of Giza and it almost looks like this beautiful informal balance. Why did they go on that diagonal? I think Robert Paval actually thought that the diagonal relates to the Nile the way the belt, stars in the belt of Orion relate to the sort of span of the Milky Way. But I think Baval and others who espoused the idea went on to say that the other stars match other pyramids. And my recollection is that there are stars for which we can't really find a match with a pyramid, and there are pyramids that don't quite match the stars. It would be nice if we found something that actually said they were doing this. So Ryan was important in the pyramid texts, as I mentioned earlier. Other Egyptologists have suggested the diagonal points to Heliopolis. And even if you look at later pyramids, the 5th Dynasty pyramids, Abu Sir, you can kind of draw a line that's on a diagonal to the northeast. Why Heliopolis? Because that's where the temple of Ra, the, the home of the sun god Ra, was located. We know very little about Heliopolis. Both the German expedition and Egyptian expedition have been digging there recently, but it's largely built over by modern Heliopolis. I would like to see something where the Egyptians say so more Definitely, but then, of course, they don't generally make such definite statements about what things mean. I think maybe it can be taken too far, and we don't have a match with other stars and pyramids. Liz Pollitt wants to know, how much of an average pyramid's total structure is visible above the ground? Well, actually, in terms of the different planes and lines of a pyramid, what you see above the ground is just the pyramid, which is fairly simple, isn't it? I mean, it's basically five points, four points for the base and a center point that you rise up. And so it's the inside of the pyramid where you have more structure, you have passages, you have chambers, especially in the Khufu pyramid, where you have the grand gallery, then the king's chamber. Above the king's chamber, you have these five stress-relieving chambers, topped by huge gabled stones. I mean, it's really quite elaborate. The Grand Gallery itself is corbelled, so the different courses of masonry come in, come in, come in, so it looks cathedral-like, you know, in terms of how the walls angle up towards a very narrow ceiling. That's just the pyramid, but what people should remember is every pyramid is not just a pyramid. It's also a set of temples. So at the base of every pyramid, there was a temple at the center eastern base, a long causeway going down to the level of the Nile Valley. For Khufu, that causeway was about 800 meters long, huge. And it ended at a valley temple. Right in front of the Sphinx, we have the valley temple of Khafre, of the second pyramid, very complete compared to other temples. Khufu's temple has always been buried. But if you add in the mortuary temple or the the temple, the memorial temple of the king at the eastern base, the causeway and the valley temple, and then in front of the valley temple, you probably had a very sophisticated built harbor. And we have evidence of that. So if you add that in, then a lot of the structure of a pyramid is visible above the ground. One Egyptologist said, we tend to think of pyramids as gigantic pyramids with temples incidentally attached. He said, if you look at the ancient Egyptian sources, They thought of a pyramid as temples with a huge pyramid incidentally attached. Temples, memorial temples to the king, and even during his life, after his life. And are there any subterranean chambers under the pyramids? I think there are probably not more subterranean chambers. It's not impossible. 
Because, of course, I think the first thing they started with was the descending passage, the passageways going down, before you plop the pyramid on top. And if you have this big square, think of it, two and a half football pitches in length for each side. That's a huge. So, I don't know, you could put actually several football pitches in the base of the grid. And that was open to the sky before you start building the pit. So it would have been very easy for them. They were very good at quarrying bedrock, you know, deep and long passages. Would have been easy for them to put something else under there. And it would be very hard to see it ever, even with the new scan pyramids project where they're, you know, muon tomography and various kinds of radar-like scanning. Boy, that would be hard to see if they had put something, say, in one corner of the Great Pyramid, because we're not going to dismantle the Great Pyramid. We have found elaborate passages in and under the pyramid in later pyramids, especially Middle Kingdom pyramids. Uh, Mud brick. But it's easier to carve your way through mud brick to find passages than it is the Great Pyramid. Just in the last year, in May, I was there for the... um, press announcement with all the previous ministers of antiquities and Mustafa Waziri and the current minister and Zahi Hawass for announcing the finding of a nine meter long passage right behind the big pented or gabled stones, the chevrons as they call it, that everybody can see right in back of them. Lo and behold, the scanned pyramids found a passage that seems to come to a dead end. For you pyramid aficionados, it's horizontal, and it's right at the same level as the horizontal passage going to the so-called Queen's Chamber. It's proof of concept for what Scan Pyramids is doing. Um, Zahi Hoas and I were members of the committee to review the works. I think probably the reason for this passage is to relieve the stress, as do the gabled stones. You know, the, the weight of the pyramid puts down... I think the purpose of this passage behind the gabled stones is to relieve the stress on the descending passage immediately below. Hugh Berkmeyer on Facebook wants to know, why do they attract so many conspiracy theories? I've wondered about that. I have boxes and boxes full of conspiracy theories. It's said that I and Dr. Zahi Hawass, who used to be in charge of all of the Giza Plateau and Minister of Antiquities, and of course, very well-known authority on the pyramids and all of Egyptian archaeology that were somehow concealing things. I mean, in my early years, I came over as a uh, new age, out of a new age interest, and everybody kind of knows that, uh, inspired by an American psychic named Edgar Cayce. And, you know, I came over with ideas, well, you know, there weren't a lot of Egyptology libraries in North Dakota, and, and, and even if there were, I didn't study them. But when I came in the early 70s as a year abroad student, I was still imbued with these ideas of Atlantis and lost civilizations. And for me, bedrock reality was just overwhelmingly convincing uh, that it was the Egyptians that Egyptologists study of that period. Overwhelmingly convincing. I mean, for 37 years, I've excavated a city with millions of pieces of pottery and animal bone and so on. So, I went through something that psychologists call cognitive dissonance very early on, and my whole focus shift. And I said, if, if that wasn't the story of Egypt, of the pyramids and the Sphinx, well, what is the story? And I found out that just by surveying, by looking at the landscape, by doing really good archaeology, there's so much more information to learn about the people who really did build the pyramids. So I changed. Uh, my belief system changed, and it catalyzed a whole career 
of doing what I hope is scientific archaeology and actually teaching that kind of archaeology to young Egyptian archaeologists. Now, those who haven't changed and who still hold to such theories, why? And it, why does it get so ad hominem? Why does it get so personal? And as for the pyramids in ancient Egypt, and I think I have become, other Egyptologists have become kind of the establishment. And there's a certain inclination to rebel and to to look for, to be iconoclastic, you know, an anti-establishment, as I was in my youth. It's almost as though people are interested in a lost civilization, maybe because they feel lost in this civilization and they're looking to the past for answers, as they are to other things, other religions. We are really bringing to life and to evidence the people, how they ate, how they were fed, how you paid for the pyramids, as one of your listeners asked. The everyday life, we dig in the dirt for everyday structures that made pyramid building possible. And if it demystifies the pyramids for some, perhaps that makes them angry or adversarial. I mean, if people want to believe that, that's fine. I know from all the years that I've been working on the Giza Plateau, I know the plateau probably as well as anybody else. And I think I have a good idea of the people behind the pyramids and the reality, their archaeological reality. And... I'll keep uh, doing that as long as I can and and transferring the research, for example, our excavation of the settlement where the pyramid builders actually lived, transferring that on to another generation who hopefully will keep generating new information. What are the origins and function of the Sphinx and whose face is it believed to portray? So I spent five years mapping the Sphinx, stone by stone. It was my breakout project. On behalf of the American Research Center in Egypt, which is a consortium of leading universities and museums, and I was in Egypt. I'd worked for several years on archaeological missions. I knew how to survey and draw, and so I'd got a lot of experience, you know, with actual field work. And I went to the American Research Center in Egypt. I said, nobody's actually ever mapped the Great Sphinx. And so they backed me for a project where we did scale drawings, stone by stone, very detailed. I've spent a lot of time at the Sphinx, and can I answer the question of why did they do it? <laughs> Maybe not. The thing is, is, there are no texts that tell us, unless we actually come up with something like Wadi al-Jarf papyri. But there, there are a couple of observations to be made here. First, the Sphinx is made right out of the natural rock. They made a quarry, a U-shaped ditch, leaving a core, kind of like the block of marble that Michelangelo used to carve David. This, this core, this big block, they made a lion body, and they put the pharaoh's head wearing the Nemi's headdress. Nemi's is the word, the ancient Egyptian word for the scarf, you know, with the lappets. Same headdress that Tutankhamun is wearing in his golden mask. So you have the head of a king, only the king would wear the Nemi's headdress, on a lion body, colossal. Now, this would be the oldest sphinx known, except for a head in the Louvre, which is, looks like it came from a sphinx because there's a turning out of the lion back. And then there's another weird sphinx from Abu Rawash. Both of these, the head and this weird sphinx, which has almondine eyes and is painted yellow and it looks like a female sphinx, they're from Abu Rawash, from the reign of Khufu's son, Jedifra. And we think the sphinx was made by Khafre, who built the second pyramid. Except for those two pieces, which are sort of problematic, the Sphinx could be a prototype. 
And it could be this age of this explosion in statuary. So not only did Khufu make the Great Pyramid, which was a huge explosion in building, but following his reign, and probably not quite in his reign, but Khafre and Menkare, it's estimated they made 450 statues. And the Sphinx should be seen as part of that. In front of the Sphinx, there's a temple. There were 24 pillars forming a colonnade around an open court. It's possible those represent the 24 hours of the day and night. The temple is strange for temples because there's a sanctuary on the west and a sanctuary on the east, where the temple walls recess in a bay. And these sanctuaries form the center axis of this temple with its 24 pillars. And they also were surrounded by 10 statues of the king. So Egyptologists who have looked at this temple think it's, in a way, the first solar temple. Because they say the eastern niche is for the rising sun, the western niche is for the setting sun. And they say so by comparing it to other temples from later times. But we also know it was in the reign of Khafre and Jedifra, his predecessor, that pharaohs started calling themselves the son of the sun. So the best idea is that the Sphinx represents Horus, the god of kingship, the king, giving offerings to the sun god Ra down in this temple. Or it could be that the Sphinx is an image of the sun god itself, and the temple is there for its worship. But we know these gigantic pyramids from the time of Giza, and the Sphinx itself, that all of this comes with an increased emphasis on the solar religion, on Heliopolis. But it, to my mind, the Sphinx is really weird. They had never done anything like this before. Carved a statue of that scale out of the bedrock, and they never did again until the New Kingdom, the big colossi of Ramses the Great and Abu Simbel, which every tourist visits, or the equally large colossi like the Colossi of Memnon at Luxor. They didn't build on this scale, and they didn't carve out of bedrock on this scale until 1,200 years later. You have to look at it in terms of this explosion of new forms, giant pyramids, that is the period of the Giza pyramids. The Great Pyramid is the last survivor of the ancient world's seven wonders. Are the Giza pyramids more at risk of degradation than urban sprawl today than at any other time in their history? And what is their future likely to be? The Egyptian government is doing a good job of preserving and conserving the structures at Giza in a number of ways. And even as I speak, they are developing more defined tourist tracks for people will actually make for a better experience for visitors, but also not be quite as laissez-faire where people can go all over the plateau and as they do now. And so that'll be a very good thing. That being said, the Giza pyramids are so huge that they may not be quite as fragile and as subject to erosion as other monuments. Now, probably the most vulnerable is the Sphinx itself. And because the Sphinx is made right out of the natural rock, as I said, and about somewhere between three to five meters below the Sphinx, you have a water table, which is there year-round. And it goes up and down over the different seasons. But because the Sphinx is made right out of the natural rock with natural fissures and so on, the water seeps up through capillary action. It dissolves salts that are naturally in the limestone. And so, of course, limestone is full of salt. So the groundwater dissolves the salts, brings them to the surface, and they crystallize and push the surface of the stone off. 
in flakes. The Egyptian government has stopped that happening on the body of the Sphinx by putting up consolidant and casing. Uh, even since I did my drawings between 1979 and 1983. That was Mark Lena. Along with Zahi Hawass, Mark is the co-author of Giza and the Pyramids, published by Thames and Hudson in 2017. To find out more about the history of ancient Egypt, go to historyextra.com slash period slash ancient Egypt. Thanks for listening to the History Extra podcast. This podcast was produced by Sam Leal Green.